Hello, welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Is the ACERA care precedent in jeopardy? Courts questioning clinical judgment standards. The 2019 ACERA Court of Appeals decision was lauded by hospices as appropriate pushback to overly aggressive whistleblowers and government enforcers. Its central holding that two physicians can reasonably disagree about a patient's six-month prognosis and neither one be wrong made it more difficult for hospices to be held liable for their physicians' good faith exercise of clinical judgment. Two subsequent court decisions, however, threatened to roll back the Care holding and reintroduce uncertainty and increase risk for hospices. In this episode, Meg Pekarski and Brian Nowicki discuss these cases, their implications, and the ongoing advocacy efforts in this area of law. I'm here with my colleague, Brian Nowicki. I'm very excited for this podcast. We've been wanting to do this one for, for quite some time and then Obviously, um, there's been a lot of focus on COVID, so uh, non-COVID podcast episode, and I have my cup of coffee, Brian, because, uh, you know, you're going to go to your, I want to be a history professor and and tell me about the Care (laughs) holding, but also, you know, what, when we say that is in jeopardy, what does that mean? And how are other courts viewing uh, this case and and clinical judgment a little bit differently. So, I really appreciate you you being here, Brian. And I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion. So, thank you. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And and this was one of the major issues before COVID hit that uh, we had been working on and talking about this, a Sarah Care decision that was brought a lot of hope, I think, and and positive news for hospices when it came out in September 2019. And then right before COVID hit, uh, a couple of decisions were apparently undermine, seemingly undermining that a bit. Uh, but yeah, since uh, COVID, we've been dealing with a lot of other issues. But now this one is percolating back to the top uh, because it may be heading toward the U.S. Supreme Court, which is uh, exciting for a hospice case to get to that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm happy to be here and, and talk about this case. And where do you want me to start? Yeah, well... Um, where to start, where to start, Brian, right? <laughs> there he could um, do a whole lecture on this, Brian. But so I think for our listeners, uh, you know, most folks ha- have probably heard about the Care case because it took many interesting twists and turns before there was um, a court ruling and, and the, you know, it was later settled. But but why don't you recap what the Care precedent uh, is because we we talked about that in the title of this, but but what do you as a hospice litigator consider the Sarah Care holding to be? Sure, and and I won't go into all of the very interesting twists and turns and some of the soap opera type aspects of the case, but just kind of get get it down to the to the fundamental point that uh, that we're going to talk about today. This this Sarah Care case involved uh, a Sarah Care hospice. Uh, which has many uh, locations across the country. Uh, the case was in uh, was tried before a judge and jury in Alabama, uh, and it took uh, a few years for it to get to trial. Even it went up to the court of appeals and back down. Ultimately, uh, the um, uh, hospice ended up uh, losing the jury 
uh, in the case. So so the government uh, got the jury to, to be on the government side in this False Claims Act case in deciding that the hospice uh, had admitted patients who were not clinically eligible for hospice. They lacked that six-month prognosis. So the jury sides for the government. Uh, the judge then decided that uh, she had mis, uh, uh, misinstructed, she improperly instructed the jury on the wrong standard of law. And so she took the case back, essentially overruled the jury, and decided that the government had failed to make its case. And really the central holding that guided the government's decision was that two physicians uh, looking at a particular medical record or uh, in a particular patient's condition uh, could uh, come to different conclusions about whether that patient had a six-month prognosis, and neither physician is necessarily wrong. And the court held that way because of all of the uh, the, the support out there for prognostication of a six-month prognosis being an inexact science, uh, and there's a lot of gray area out there, and then the central role of the hospice physician and the hospice benefit. So that was a great win for hospices. The government appealed that decision to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. That's a federal court. It uh, has jurisdiction over Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And the 11th Circuit sided with the trial judge on that central holding. Uh, so the, the 11th Circuit, the highest level court in the United States that had yet addressed this issue, agreed with this uh, two physicians being able to disagree and, and neither one be wrong, given the, the inexact nature of prognostication. Uh, now, the Court uh, of Appeals sent the case back to the trial court for other reasons we don't need to get into, but that was really the, the most significant holding of the 11th Circuit. Uh, and a couple of corollary holdings that were also helpful to hospices was the 11th Circuit clarified that the documentation that a hospice must maintain in the medical record doesn't need to independently prove that the patient had a six-month prognosis. It just needs to support the conclusion of the hospice physician. So a lot of times when we're working with hospices on False Claims Act cases or audits, we get the sense that the auditors or the whistleblowers are saying, well, the documentation wasn't good enough. So it didn't prove that the patient was terminally ill. And so the Care case, the 11th Circuit decision, helped us in that regard to saying support is all that is required, not proof. And finally, the, the, I think one of the, I, I believe the third really good holding from the uh, 11th Circuit Care case uh, related to who can really judge and determine whether a hospice physician exercised reasonable clinical judgment. Uh, and I think the court through its holdings made pretty clear that you need a physician with hospice experience to determine whether a hospice physician appropriately exercised his or her clinical judgment. Uh, that's important because in a lot of the audit cases we do, and even in some whistleblower cases where the government is involved, they're not employing physicians to review the medical records. They're, look, they're employing uh, nurse reviewers or other non-physician clinicians to essentially overturn the judgment of the hospice physician. And we've long thought that that was inappropriate uh, because the physician is there for a reason. The physician is given the authority by the hospice regulations to determine eligibility. No other clinician is. And so it really doesn't make sense to have a nurse reviewer overturn that judgment. And so I think those three things coming together 
were very helpful for hospices and we have uh, made use of those in a lot of the arguments we're making. So that in a nutshell is where Acera Care put us as of last September, 2019. So Brian, couple things there. So the, the first uh, question is, you know, people might scratch their head and say, well, you know, this is a false claim case. Why, why does what the 11th Circuit matter? What, why does what they say matter in terms of my everyday practice? And, and you talked about audits and claim review. I guess, what, what are your thoughts on that? Right. Yeah, you're, you're right, Meg. The, the Acericare case was a False Claims Act case. So, uh, you know, the, the False Claims Act is uh, a, a law that is out there to root out fraud in obtaining payments from the government. So it's a pretty uh, a substantial tool that the government has, and uh, whistleblowers are allowed to make use of that law and have their own private uh, action against hospices or any other kind of provider that seeks payment from the government. So that is a very... Uh, I guess, intense enforcement tool that the government has. Uh, and Acericare was a False Claims Act case. But interestingly, when the Acericare court, and I'm talking about the 11th Circuit, when it decided this case, it was very clear in its pri- what it believed to be its primary function. And it believed its primary function was not necessarily applying the False Claims Act case, although it did do that. Its primary function was to interpret the Medicare hospice benefit uh, and the eligibility requirements relating to that benefit. Now, that is a set of regulations that is significant for False Claims Act cases that uh, accuse providers of violating those regulations. But those are also the same regulations that auditors apply when they are auditing a hospice, whether it's a UPIC um, Medicaid uh, auditors also look to these same rules that the Acericare Court uh, defined and interpreted. So I think everything the Acericare Court said about the hospice Medicare benefit really has application well beyond False Claims Act cases and into the everyday compliance of how are we going to abide by these rules and regulations that hospices need to deal with. And so... Uh... Obviously, not to date you, Brian, but <laughs> you do have some gray hair and you've been doing this for, for 20 years um, or more. I guess when you read the 11th Circuit case, I mean, did you feel like it was a good decision? I mean, yes, obviously we agree with the outcome of it, but in, in terms of uh, judicial decisions, uh, did you think it was well-reasoned and, and thorough? Yeah, I I did, and and we we've we're, we've always been hungry for cases that dive into the hospice benefit, because although hospices deal with these regulations all the time, when you look at activity in the courts and regulations, hospice is just one small piece of that. So they're always at the front of our minds, but we're anxious for any kind of decision that gives us some interpretation of the hospice benefit. And what I thought was impressive about the Acericare decision was it really went into great detail about the hospice benefit in ways that a lot of courts don't. Even cases that deal with hospice 
False Claims Act issues or hospices in other contexts, you, you can see that there's not just a, a, a deep dive into the hospice benefit and they misstate the benefit, even, even the courts do. So I thought it was very impressive how the Acericare court went into those regulations, went into the guidances, really peeled back the onion on this benefit in a way that I have not seen other courts do. Um, and and it's it's a rare situation where you get a court to get that in-depth. And there, I think it gives it the case a lot of credibility as mm-hmm. being an expert review and analysis of the hospice benefit. And, you know, our, our position has been if, if, if auditors, if courts ever would do this deep dive, they would really see what we have seen for quite some time, which is the the, the regulations themselves really are pretty favorable to hospices. It's when they get in the hands of courts and auditors that maybe do hospice work 10% of the time, and it's kind of a new thing for them, and they don't understand it. That's where the, the problems arise for hospices. So I, I thought overall, it was a really solid decision. Well, and I, I think that uh, it's been a while since I read it all the way through, but I, I recall there being, you know, if there, uh, you want to change the law, then change the law, but you can't essentially change the law by how you're going to interpret or read into to certain elements. So, so anyway, well, that, yeah. Well, no, you're, that's absolutely right. And, and one of the, you know, when the court did swing back to the False Claims Act part of the case, uh, they said, well, you know, and this is in the decision, they said, well, the government is saying that we're kind of raising the bar on their ability to go after hospices. And the court's response that was, yes, we are, <laughs> we are interpreting the law in a way that we think is appropriate, and it may require more of the government than they're accustomed to providing. But if they want to that, they should go to Congress and change the law, because the law is pretty clear in what it says. And, and mm-hmm. in defining the standards. And so I think appropriately so, they said, go to CMS, go to Congress. If you want, if you want to make it easier for you, the government, to, to pursue hospices, have them change the law. But as the law is written, uh, here's the standards you have to meet. So that's September 2019, and the world has changed a lot since then in, in many different ways. But um, tell me about these other, other cases uh, that, from your perspective, appear to be undercutting or challenging uh, the care holdings, those three sort of fundamental holdings that you described. Right. Yeah. And there, there's a couple of cases that have come out in the last few months. Uh, one is out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's the federal circuit that uh, has jurisdiction over California, Washington, Oregon, and, and a number of Western states. Uh, that is the the winter case. And then there was a case out of New Jersey. And this is the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which I believe deals with uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware may be a part of that as well. That's the CARE Alternatives case. Uh, and the CARE Alternatives case was really the first one that came out and was the initial com- uh, pushback against Care. The CARE Alternatives case, I think, pushed back against Care on that central holding that was so significant and helpful to hospices regarding the disagreement between two physicians. In that CARE Alternatives case, which was a hospice case, the uh, government, uh, it was a False Claims Act case, the government and the whistleblower had their physician expert who reviewed the record, 
uh, and uh, that physician said that uh, he disagreed with the prognostication performed by the certifying physicians. Uh, and rather than the care alternatives case uh, conclude that, well, what we have is a reasonable disagreement between physicians, uh, and therefore the government has failed to prove its case, uh, the care alternatives court said, with this reasonable disagreement of physicians, we're going to let the jury decide which physician to believe. And as I described with the Aceracare case, where the judge kind of took that decision out of the jury's hands, uh, and the 11th Circuit uh, agreed that that was appropriate to do because mere disagreement is not enough, the Care Alternatives case was saying, well, mere disagreement can be enough to get you to the jury. And as a litigator for 20 years, uh, especially if you're on the defense side, you know that juries are extremely unpredictable. And a lot of times the government or a whistleblower, what they see is um, what they see as a victory is being able to even get to the jury. Because once it's clear that your case is going to the jury, the defendant, uh, the hospice defendant, realizes the risks increase substantially and they're more prone to settle. So if as a, as a plaintiff, as the government in these False Claims Act cases, you're really trying to battle to get beyond a motion to dismiss because then you know that the hospice defendant is going to have a, a significant amount of exposure in a risky and uncertain area of a jury deciding what's going to happen. And then that's where all the settlements happen. So there was a significant case in uncertainty and the risk increases is now, according to care alternatives, these kinds of things should go to the jury for the jury to figure out some in, in some fashion, which of two reasonable physicians to believe. So, which I know when, not to, to harken back to, to Sarah Care, but, you know, and those twists and turns, but I remember when the, the jury decision came out, I was just sort of blown away that the, the jury, I can't remember the specific number of cases they disagreed with, but it was a very high number. And, you know, in in my 20 plus years doing uh, hospice law, I feel like, you know, you start picking at the medical records for folks and, you know, you see people who are, um, you know, in, in very difficult circumstances and and it, it's fairly easy to paint the picture of a limited prognosis. So the, the fact that the jury in that instance, just to your point about unpredictability, I, I, I would have said, "Oh, Brian, you're being negative, right?" But I mean, it was <laughs> I was surprised at the, the the you know very very high percentage of of patients that they said, "Yeah, the hospice really shouldn't have been treating those patients." So I think just to to underscore your yeah. point, I think it's really uh, important and this idea of having to go to uh, the jury because I right I mean all of What's so challenging with hospice cases is it feels as though everything is done in hindsight, right? You can see, did the patient indeed die or did they not, which is obviously a totally different vantage point than the hospice physician. So so this care alternatives case, Brian, they went to district court. So they were in district court. And then did they lose there? And then they went to the court of appeals or or tell me sort of how they got sure. to where they are now. 
Yeah, and in care alternatives, the district court, which is the trial level court at the federal level, that court actually applied a Seracare and ruled in favor of the hospice. So that case was on its way to dismissal uh, until the government and the whistleblower decided to appeal to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And it was the Court of Appeals that reversed the trial court and sent it back to the trial court uh, to put it more on track toward a jury determination of, uh, of the, the issue of which physician uh, was more believable in the jury's mind. So, yeah, we think the trial court got it right, but then the Third Circuit comes in, and and that's where the conflict with Aceracare comes out. These two different courts of appeal, the Aceracare Court of Appeals and the Care Alternative Court of Appeals, uh, are are in conflict over this particular issue. And Meg, you'd you'd mentioned, you know, being surprised at Aceracare, and just to give folks a sense of how how weak I think the government's case was in Aceracare. The government star witness, their clinician, their physician, uh, had conceded that, that, that he didn't think the Aceracare physicians were unreasonable, that they reasonably held their beliefs. And in fact, that star witness for the government and Aceracare had changed his opinion on some of these cases, where he initially thought they were ineligible, and then he changed his mind uh, months later to say, no, they were eligible. And despite all of that, the jury still really sided with the government. The government, in the cases it prosecutes, uh, they have a a 90-plus percent win rate. I mean, they are are very favored by the jury, uh, which is another reason we got to be wary of these kinds of cases getting to the jury, especially if the government is leading the prosecution. Yeah, so the hospice gets a victory at the lower level, they lose at the Court of Appeals, it goes back down to the district court level, and I mean, it's bouncing around a lot of different places. So where are things right now? Well, right, so the the Third Circuit uh, overturned the trial court, and the case was on track to go back to the trial court to proceed to a jury trial. But what happened instead of that is Care Alternatives tried to get a a rehearing before the Third Circuit. Uh, In the appeal process, if you don't like the Court of Appeals decision, you can ask that Court of Appeals to rehear the case. Uh, And so they made that application to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals rejected it. So the Court of Appeals says, no, we're comfortable with our decision. Uh, We're still intent on remanding this, sending it back to the trial court. That doesn't end the opportunities for care alternatives to keep proceeding with this appeal. Uh, What it needs to do next, if it wants to continue this battle before it goes back to the trial court, is go to the United States Supreme Court and ask the United States Supreme Court to take review of this case at this time. The, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, only, it, it, the U.S. Supreme Court gets to decide what cases it uh, wants to take on appeal. Uh, every year there are thousands of, they're called petitions for certiorari that are filed with the United States Supreme Court. And that court only accepts, I think, less than 5% of them. Um, so what care alternatives would need to do is file that petition for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and uh, try to persuade the U.S. Supreme Court that its case is worthy of the court's attention 
and that it should be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. So we believe that the care alternatives uh, folks are going to go to that Supreme Court level of review, file a petition for certiorari within the next few months, uh, and then we'll know um, after the Supreme Court takes a look at that petition, it's either going to grant review or not, and then we'll know if this is going to be a Supreme Court case. Wow. I I don't think that 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 uh, many folks thought that um, a hospice case would be going to to that level. But as you indicate, I mean, hospice false claim cases. While we're a small chunk of providers, uh, a lot of case law has been uh, in the area of false claim has been made in in hospice cases, whether we're talking about use of extrapolation for damages and lots of other sort of concepts. So with our move to Hush Blackwell, it's been very exciting to um, learn about the skills and gifts of our colleagues. Uh, And we have uh, a lot of colleagues who have written amicus briefs, and I want to talk about what are amicus briefs in a second, Brian, but um, and also argued in front of the Supreme Court. And, and so we have deep best bench strength as it relates to uh, appellate work. Uh, and actually, I think, Brian, just yesterday, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case that came out that that our firm had written an amicus brief on. And, and anyway, I mean, it's we have deep bench strength in that area. And so... Um, Obviously, care alternatives has their own lawyer, but but trying to get something uh, to be uh, taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court seems like it's probably has lots of tentacles to it. And how do you sort of push that boulder up up the hill? So tell me about what are strategies to get your case in front of the Supreme Court and sort of get chosen and and what do you see the role of the hospice industry and the healthcare community in, in helping that be done here in the care alternatives case? Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into the Supreme Court's decision about whether to take a case or not. The care alternatives matter seems to be checking a lot of these uh, a lot of these items uh, off the list. So I, I think they're they have a good approach. Uh, one of the things you like to be able to point to as you're going to the United States Supreme Court is that the underlying courts of appeals are in conflict. Um, if the 11th Circuit has a holding that is in conflict with the 3rd and the 9th Circuit, which I believe we have here, that's a reason for the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and resolve that conflict so that we don't have hospices in Florida uh, being subject to a different set of requirements than hospices in California. So uh, I, I believe there is that conflict between these cases. I've read some commentary and articles that suggest there really isn't a conflict, but but, but I don't buy it. I, I think there is a clear conflict between these cases. So you know, check that one off the box. Uh, it, it's helpful if you have the right kinds of advocates in place to push your case uh, and Care Alternatives has done that. They've retained an attorney named Paul Clement. He's a former uh, U.S. solicitor, so he argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of the government. He's probably uh, one of, if not the most well-known Supreme Court attorneys out there. He's argued before the Supreme Court, I, I would think, hundreds of times. 
and he is now their lead counsel in this. So his name carries a lot of uh, carries a lot of gravitas with it when you're trying to go to the Supreme Court. So they made a very good move in bringing on uh, a counsel with that kind of experience and background to push this case. And another thing that can be very helpful is if it is demonstrated that this case is significant beyond just the parties at issue. So right now, the CARE Alternatives case involves uh, some whistleblowers and CARE Alternatives. But as we've described during this podcast, the the implications for this case really reach out to, to every hospice that is out there. And it is of a lot of interest to the whistleblower community as well and to the government enforcers. So if you're able to demonstrate to the Supreme Court that this is a significant case beyond the parties and that it's going to affect industries and it really deserves the Supreme Court's attention because of that uh, broad impact, you're going to help your chances at getting that review by the Supreme Court. And so the way, a way to demonstrate that broad impact and importance of a case is for those with an interest in the outcome to make a filing with the Supreme Court supporting the petition for certiorari. And this happens a lot. Those are the amicus uh, briefs, uh, Meg, that you were mentioning. Amicus is friend of the court. And uh, you can, as an amicus, you can uh, ask the Supreme Court for permission to file a brief supporting a petition for certiorari. Uh, And industry groups are often amicus um, parties because they can say they can give the perspective of an entire industry on the impact of a case. So uh, industry players in the hospice and healthcare industry or other areas where the clinical judgment of a physician is somehow central to a finding of liability, all of those kinds of providers and and uh, industry groups representing those providers can probably give a good perspective to the Supreme Court about how the care alternatives case and the Acericare case are going to affect them. And so it's going to affect all sorts of providers across the country. And it's important enough for the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved for that reason as well. And so, and I think that that's a really important point, Brian, because I do believe a lot of non-hospice healthcare providers, including physicians, are are watching this case because it gets into what physicians do every day, which is their clinical judgment. <laughs> Very few times can a physician say something with absolute certitude. And so the idea of clinical judgment and what kind of deference physicians are given and I think is fundamental to many different uh, healthcare providers who have to rely on their conditions of payment are are grounded in clinical judgment. And so, um, so Brian, obviously, we um, work very uh, closely with, with the industry at large, obviously work with hospices all across the country. And so I know we're itching to be part of a coalition that, that comes together to uh, hopefully support, uh, if indeed there is a filing to the U.S. Supreme Court, to support that and obviously support the, the 11th Circuit as opposed to the 3rd Circuit. Um, view of things. And so, um, so I, I know you're, you would love the, the opportunity to do that, Brian. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've been in touch with the the attorney the attorneys for Care Alternatives, um, and and so we're we're kind of already at a, at a high level, uh, coordinating with them to the extent uh, that these amicus opportunities present themselves. Uh, and and we've been in, in touch with uh, with stakeholders who have an interest in the decision. So we think this is a a great opportunity for the hospice community to really uh, um, become an advocate for the Acera Care ruling and all of the good that that has brought to hospices in a very in a very concrete and practical way. Because if, if we can become an advocate in this case and help care alternatives and we end up getting review, we end up getting a good decision, you know, that, that could really change the whole landscape of how the government enforces either the False Claims Act or enforces the regulations. So really, a, a, the time for action or the opportunity to take action like this in a very meaningful, concrete way doesn't present itself very often. Uh, and yeah, we do have mm-hmm. people uh, here at our firm uh, who, who've who gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, we're, we're, we have a team of folks here ready to move uh, who've uh, filed amicus briefs with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Meg, you and I have wrestled with these hospice-related issues for years mm-hmm. and years. So you know, <laughs> we we are we are anxious to 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 do this because we think we can really advocate very well for the hospice's position on these issues and and take advantage of what may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I think as you indicated early on in the podcast, I mean we have Eleventh Circuit, which is very favorable, but you have this care alternatives case, and then the I think you said is it the out in California the winter case. Yeah. yeah, the winter case that was not favorable to hospices either. So, so you know if you're counting things up, I don't think it's it's fear mongering to say you know this Sarah care and this holding could be in jeopardy because there are other courts and, you know, as you said, the, um, you know, Third Circuit, I mean, it's another court of appeals. And so you, we no longer can say, you know, the highest court in the land to evaluate these issues um, interpreted things this way. Now you're, you're seeing that split that you talked about. And um, so anyway, I think that it's incredibly important uh, issue. And I think that um, your comments about, well, what's so bad about, you know, the the care alternatives decision? I mean, just bring it to the jury. I think your experience as a litigator for as long as you have been, and I think how things worked out sort of initially for Sarah Care when they their case went to the jury, um, you know, that can be, you know, very dicey. And so essentially, as you said, either you roll the dice or more likely, you know, settle. And, and so, so anyway, it is, it is, I, I, I think, uh, a very important juncture that we're at. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, really what, what the care alternatives route would mean is it's putting the jury and asking the jury to do something it just cannot do. Because if you're going to take two reasonable physician conclusions about prognostication and then have the jury try to pick the winner of that, 
Uh, they, they can't do that unless it's a jury of physicians who can tell you which of the reasonable physician opinions is is what more reasonable and and how can they do that if they don't have that medical background? That's really the role of the experts in these cases. And if the government's expert can't even say the hospice did wrong, there's really no way that a jury can rescue the government's case for it uh, and say, you know, despite the, the the lack of evidence from the government's own expert, we, the jury, are going to decide that this doctor did something wrong. Uh, it, it really misplaces the decision-making role. So, mm-hmm. but but that's that's the way care alternatives, I think, would take this, which uh, can't be good news for hospices and physicians in general. Yeah, well, really interesting um, lead up to this. And I mean, we're not even going back to before a Sarah Care, we say to a Vista Care case. Um, and so for a while there, we were headed in a positive direction in terms of how courts were, were viewing hospice eligibility and medical decision making. And um, so Anyway, I think it's, it's, I really appreciate your time today, Brian. We are, um, as you said, probably in our, our legal careers at, at a once in a lifetime kind of opportunity here. So, uh, and probably for a lot of our listeners who've been in hospice for a while, but um, aren't going to be around for another 50 years and in hospice. I mean, this is sort of a watershed moment. So uh, I think it's really important uh, to to get the word out and interesting about what this could mean. And obviously, as you point out and where we want to leave the listeners, I mean, there's no guarantee that the Supreme Court will take this case. And so um, there's a lot of what ifs along the path. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, very worthy case that hopefully does get picked up by by the U.S. Supreme Court. So I guess any other closing thoughts, Brian? Uh, well, well, thanks, Meg, for, for uh, talking about this important case. And, and uh, you know, if there are, are folks out there who are interested in learning more about it or what can be done, you know, I, I would say get in touch with your your organizations about, uh, about this case and see what they can do. Uh, although, Individuals can be amicus parties. I think it's the industry groups at a state or national level uh, that uh, may have more to say about this. So, um, if there's an interest out there, see what your see what your organization is doing about this, and um, and we're obviously happy to to help facilitate any kind of effort in this regard. So, thanks, Meg. Yeah. Thank you, Brian, and uh, appreciated your your insights. Really interesting. Thank you. You're very welcome.